first sergeant when I was a probationary officer out on the streets did my evaluation and said, I've given you a bad evaluation because that way you can improve. And I said, well, hang on a minute. Did I do bad? And he said, no, you didn't do bad. But I always give my new recruits a bad evaluation first. And that way they show progression over time. And it was like, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Welcome to the Tribe of Leaders podcast. I'm serial entrepreneur and investor, Emmy Kirshner. And I'm known for sprinkling just a little bit of glitter throughout the streets of Philadelphia and on the stages that I speak while I help creative entrepreneurs stop struggling as the overworked admin in their business and become the CEO of their multi-six and seven-figure businesses. What has fascinated me over the years are the stories of success and failure that courageous entrepreneurs who have put it all on the line face as they change lives, disrupt industries, and become incredible leaders themselves. So if you're looking for a community of engaged entrepreneurs, and you'd love to get some resources and tools that can help you fast track your business, I invite you to join the Tribe of Leaders Facebook group. The link is in the show notes if you want to connect with us. And of course, the group is free to join. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Tribe of Leaders podcast. I am, as with every episode, super excited to have my guest, David Wheatley. He is a leadership coach, facilitator, trainer, and chief question asker at Humanergy. Perfect. Correctly, David? Yes. <laughs> Those of you who are wishing you could just see the video, I like made that big yes sign for... <laughs> that I got it right. Anyways, a boutique leadership development company. He has worked for over 25 years with government, technology, and financial institutions. Originally from Leeds, England, David earned a master's in organizational management from Spring Arbor University and has taught on master's programs at the University of Maryland, Michigan State University. He is the co-author of What Great Teams Do Great, How Ordinary People Accomplish the Extraordinary all of that means that David knows exactly what he's talking about. And what we did not cover in your bio is that you also are a former Scotland Yards police officer. So one, David, welcome to the show. And two, I can hardly wait to hear all about the amazing things that you're doing. Well, I hope I don't disappoint too much. But, uh, <laughs> I've never claimed to know everything that I'm talking about. <laughs> I am sure that you have tremendous value to share with everybody and Let's dive into your background. Like, I'm really curious about how people go from point A to B. What led you to choosing to be a police officer and shifting out of that? <laughs> well, it's, it's a long and winding story, as most of these are. Yeah. I, um, I grew up in a place called Leeds, which is a city in the north of England, and I would spend as much time as possible as a sea cadet. And a sea cadet was like a Boy Scout that has an affiliation with the Navy. And so I sailed, I kayaked, I did all that kind of stuff. And I was trying to go to the British equivalent of Annapolis, which is uh, the Britannia Royal Naval College at Dartmouth. And uh, I was going before university and they said, come back when you're a bit more mature. And uh, they'd always ask me what my backup plan was if I didn't get in. And I said, well, I'd probably look at the police. And I didn't get in with the, the reserved place. And so they told me to come back when I was more mature. And I, I thought, what could I do if I want to grow up and be more mature? And then I saw an advert for the, the Metropolitan Police, which is London's police force, where part of the training was involving kayaking. And so I said, well, that's the one for me then. 
And uh, and so I joined the police. I went at 18 and a half. I moved to London, which was 200 miles away from um, where I grew up. And it was my version of kind of basic training and uh, and going in the service, if you like, and getting away from home and just doing something that uh, was exciting and was uh, adventurous in a whole host of ways. And in the UK, probably much more uh, back then and, and than in the US, policeman gets paid relatively well and um, is seen as a, an esteemed job. And so it was, was fun to do. But then five years into doing that, everybody was talking about how they only had 25 more years to go before they could retire. And their ambition when they retired was to move to the national park and buy a sports car and do all their hobbies. And I was thinking, well, my hobbies are whitewater kayaking and climbing. So am I going to want to do those when I'm in my 50s? And uh, funnily enough, I, I still do. But uh, I left the police to go back to school and start doing some education work around uh, leadership development and training. But I chose my school based on the fact it was in the national park. And I bought a sports car, but that was just. <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible. So what was it that, like outside of the kayaking part of the being a police officer, what about that really drew you in? Because it's still, it's law enforcement. So it's a, it's a hard job. It is. And, you know, I've often wondered, I've thought this with my kids, that I think we channel them into a career way, way too early. And the expectation these days, especially in the States, of you graduate high school and you go to college and you will know what you want to do by the time you get halfway through college is nuts. And, uh, and so really the police was, um, it felt like a good stopgap while I worked out what I wanted to do. And it felt like it was something that I didn't have to think too much. I didn't have to you know, think about what I was going to wear that morning. You know, it was all assigned in that way. And it had a little bit of autonomy and adventure to it that said I can you know, continue to be uh, to have fun and to engage people, which I've always enjoyed doing and learn as much as I could, which, you know, I've, I've always been one to, if there's a training available, I'll sign up for it. Awesome. Awesome. What was your one or two of like your big learning experiences as a police officer, particularly from a leadership perspective? It's, I mean, I had the, a real cross-section of leaders when I was in the police uh, that um, some of whom were willing to nurture that immaturity and to grow it, which was a good thing, and others who were kind of blunt about their approach. I remember my first sergeant when I was a probationary officer out on the streets did my evaluation and said, I've given you a bad evaluation because that way you can improve. And I said, well, hang on a minute, did I do bad? And he said, no, you didn't do bad. But I always give my new recruits a bad evaluation first, and that way they show progression over time. And it was like, oh, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Right. And, and I'd rather you were honest with me and fact-based and, uh, and let's be transparent about what's actually happening. And then there were others that saw an excitement and an interest in certain things and were channeling down in that direction. And I think one of the lessons that I still come out with, and it kind of links back to that schooling thing, is uh, you're never too old to go with a passion. And I find myself working with people who've worked in organizations for long periods of time, and they, they're not excited, they're not energized. And, and you start uh, sharing with them either you know Jim Collins' hedgehog from good to great, or the, mm -hmm. the Japanese have a principle, ikigai, which is the overlapping circles that define your purpose. And you realize that they've got this real passion and, and sense of purpose somewhere else. And yet they're tied to 
a salary or a position or a title. And if you can unlock them from that, all of a sudden you energize people because life's too short to be sat in a job waiting to retire. I totally agree. And also agree with your earlier statement about how we really channel, particularly in the States, kids from high school into college. And kids are super stressed out about it. Yeah. Thinking they have to make all these like life decisions that are going to impact them for forever. And I know with my kids, I was like, look at schools that meet the parameters of who you are and might have a great program that you might want to move into or has have enough you know areas. And my younger guy knew like he does cabinet making and woodworking and he knew from ninth grade that that's what he wanted to do and just graduated and has a full-time job and is about to get a new position within the company already after like four months. So I think giving, whether it's your kids or just looking at retirement and your position differently as something that you can create and expand and is very freeing. Yeah. And I think that, you know, we, we've lost sight of that. Go spend some time learning. So now you're out of high school, go and be an adult and learn how to be an adult. And whether it's, you know, I've got one son in the U S air force who he went in the military straight after school and it suited him perfectly. I've got another one that uh, was born in England. We moved him to America when he was three. And when he graduated high school at 18, he moved back to England with a plan of just wandering around Europe, doing odd jobs and working out what he wanted to be in life. And he's now a, a labor lawyer attached to the unions in the North of England. And so he's found his mission and his focus, but yeah. uh, it took him till he was 24 to go to college uh, because he then knew what he wanted to go do. Right. And so I think there's that, that sense of, and it can happen all the way up to somebody in their fifties that says, I don't know what I want to be when I grow up. Well, let's work it out and let's start doing it. <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, it sounds like, and I know I have as well, I've had many different positions in many different industries and that's what makes what I'm doing right now so strong is because I have that varied background. Yeah. Yeah. And so go learn how to be a welder and that will keep you in, you know, you could tour the world with a, a welding certificate and never yeah. go short of money. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's dive back into, you've decided to go to school, you know, you're focusing on leadership. What happens during that time period? Uh, and where are you going now? Well, that kayak theme will come back, unfortunately, that... Um, <laughs> I went to a college for education in, in the Lake District of England, which is a national park. And uh, college is on one side of Lake Windermere, which is the largest lake in England. And on the other side of the lake was another college called Ray Castle, which was a marine radio technology college. But they also had a management training side of things. As I flirted within the police, they were doing in the 80s a lot of management development in the outdoors and uh, needed people to run the safety with the right bits of paper. And so I would literally paddle across Lake Windermere in my kayak from one college to go and work at the other college as the safety guy when they were doing these teams out on the lake. And I started to realize that there was a team learning how to be leaders. There was a facilitator and there was me as the safety person to make sure nobody drowned. And I could ask as good, if not better questions of the team as the facilitator did. And it, those questions seem to open up people's thinking and get them looking at things a little differently. And, and so you know, I was learning the education side on one side of the lake and practicing asking good questions of leaders on the other side of the lake. And that was what really drew my attention and my interest was that was where my passion lay is kind of work with these people in business worlds and work out what question they need right now. How important do you think it is to ask good questions? 
I think leadership and asking good questions are um, synonymous in my mind. You know, most of my, my work in the last 20 years has been helping leaders stop doing things for people and start working out what the question is that unlocks that person's thinking so that they can find it out for themselves. And when they do that and you recognize it and that light bulb goes off in people's heads, there's a real excitement for everybody because that individual goes away with ownership and the leader goes away saying, I did it. I worked out the question that they needed right now. And that, that is the challenge of leadership in my mind is working out what question my followers, direct reports may, may need right now in order to engage them at their fullest around what we're trying to achieve. And are there, I mean, obviously there's better questions than others. Things are more open-ended, but are there types of questions that can help leaders really find that, that place to unlock the yeah. people they're working with? I think there are. <laughs> Contrary to your opening statement, I don't know everything. <laughs> the, um, we call them powerful questions. And a, a powerful question can be defined by it is not answered yes or no. So it's open-ended. It's not advice disguised as a question, which we can all too often be guilty of when we say, well, have you thought about doing A, B, and C? And it sounds like we've asked the question, but in actual fact, we just led them in a direction. And, and they're not judgmental. So I'm not asking a question as a judgment. It's really based in a curiosity. So it doesn't mean I have an answer. It means I'm asking this question genuinely to see what we can explore. When leaders get the hang of that and they ask a question like that, that's when you can really unlock people. But then it's not all about asking questions. Quite often it's about leaving the silence so that the person can think and they don't even need the question. You just created the space for them to come up with their own answer. Yeah, I love that space of silence because people need that to process. Yeah. And if you're just talking, 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 then they don't get that time to come up with any ideas or solutions or another question to bring back at, at the conversation. A great friend of mine and, and colleague, Judy Brown, she was a leadership consultant. As I quote one of her poems often, and she wrote a poem called Fire. And if you Google Judy Brown and fire, you'll find this poem. But the essence of the poem is the way you build a fire is not just loaded with the logs. You have to create the right space between the logs in order for that fire to take off. And she uses the poem as a leadership tool because quite often we just stack logs on top of people and we don't create the space between the logs that allows the fire to really take um, to ignite. Mm-hmm. And, and that just resonates with me that leaders way too often don't leave the space. And that space is so valuable. Right. I so agree because it's, it's what you said earlier. Like if you're giving them the answers, it's not the same as yeah. them coming up with themselves. If you're giving them the answers, you've just trained them to come to you for the answers. Yeah. What is the benefit of doing that for leaders? In addition to the ownership piece, like what, what are some of the other results that leaders can start to see, feel, expect as their, their people are taking more ownership? I think it's it's broad. That's a great question because they people get to a leadership role because they were good at the last job. And so because they were good at the last job, the the tendency is to think that they know how to do the last job. Mm-hmm. And the, the analogy I use, and I, I used it on an episode of my podcast with folks, and it's a, an American football analogy, which is always dangerous because I'm a proper football guy, but an American football analogy that people at every level of leadership, when you get promoted, you go from being the quarterback to being the coach. And if you think about what a quarterback is, they're in the middle of the play, they're controlling everything, their hands on the ball all the time, they're calling things, they're directing everything that's there. And if you think about the role of the coach, they're stood on the sidelines, observing, maybe making some suggestions and thinking about what you're going to work on in practice next time to make the next game better. But the 
the more the game goes on, the less real influence the coach has compared to the quarterback. And so if, if I've been a quarterback and I become the coach, one of the first things I have to realize is it's not my job to go on the field anymore. I have to give the ball to somebody else. And even though they may not be the best quarterback on the team, that might still be me. It's now my job to give them the ball and make them a better quarterback than I ever was. And it's that transition in leadership that has probably been my career for the last 20 years, helping people through that at every stage that they let go of the ball. And when people are in that stage and this is the first time they're really letting go of the ball, like, is it scary for them or are they celebrating? <laughs> well, I think oh. you, you kind of answered that. <laughs> so, so yes, it's scary because you have to trust somebody else to do it and you know you, you're capable of doing it. And so I imagine if you know, that quarterback is, becomes the coach, the first time the quarterback gets sacked, then the coach is thinking, well, I wouldn't have done that. <laughs> right, right. But the coach has to think back, what did the quarterback just learn from that? And as long as nobody got hurt, maybe that's a great experience that we can use to make that an even better quarterback. But it's that trust in the, the situation. And quite often the question I ask leaders is, uh, where's your best learning come from? And when they think about it, it's the mistakes they made and how they pick themselves up from the mistakes. Yeah. And so when you recognize that, you see the light bulb go off in them that says, oh, so I need to let my people, <laughs> I need to give a bit of space for my people to make mistakes to maximize the learning. And now they're developing leaders on their team rather than just followers. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I did this with my kids, but I also do it with my team and teach my clients as well, like to set your people up for failure and not from a standpoint of like putting them in terrible positions where there's no way that they can succeed, where they have all these opportunities to do A or B and make choices and learn from them and be guided and supported. Because I think we breeze by, like we take two seconds to celebrate, you know, whatever the goal is that we've accomplished and we breeze by all of those and they're great, but we don't really debrief them as much as the opportunity from the standpoint of when things are not working well. Yeah, the American Army has a great technique called an after-action review. Mm-hmm. And I've taken and adapted some of that for use with a lot of my clients. That The idea is, after an action, you sit down with all the key stakeholders in that action and you leave your rank at the door and you really say, what was the plan? What actually happened? What caused that to happen? What did we learn from this? What will we apply next time? And yeah. there's no, no blame. Right. It's, there's no rank. It's all a matter of let's get the honest facts on the table because we want to maximize the learning in the future as much as possible. Because we can't do anything about yesterday. All we can do is learn from that to make sure that we make it better today and tomorrow. Yeah. And I like the neutrality of that. Of like no rank, no position, no whatever. We're just in here to dissect what was not good or bad and just make it better. For somebody who's not in a leadership position, how can they have more influence or develop more influence in the team or the group? And I appreciate the the gentle, low-ball toss back to my book, What Great Teams Do Great, because what we talk about in there is that leadership is not about the title, the rank, the position, the points. It's about the choices you make, Mm -hmm. and in particular, the choices you make that influence and impact the people around you. And so if you think about that, everybody is making leadership choices on a daily basis. The difference between somebody at the, who's part of the team and somebody who's the defined leader of the team is just amplification. That The CEO's choices are amplified a little louder than the janitor's choices, but the janitor is still making leadership choices that influence the people around them. 
And uh, and so that idea of if we're making leadership choices, we can make good and bad leadership choices, what we call green path and red path choices. And the model there is we're, we're laying bricks on our leadership path continually. Mm-hmm. And a green one is one that drives us towards a greater good, a better future. And a red one is one that tends to be blame, attack, avoid, all of those nasty things that get in our way. And right. so every member of the team can make red and green path choices on a daily basis that influence the rest of the team. Right. And what was the catalyst for you writing the book? It's one catalyst is that if you're doing this kind of work and you don't put something out every few years, then uh, sometimes people can think you're a bit stagnant. Uh, it really came from, we were doing some work with, with a number of teams for a, a lot of years, especially with uh, Michigan State University's executive MBA program. And they are a team oriented Michigan State business school, the Broad Business School tries to orient to teams and they want their people to be the best workers on teams. And so when you come into an executive MBA and you just lay down your sixty or $70,000, you get to meet me. And I say that the four or five people sat at your table are going to be responsible for 45% of your grade. When all those type A's suddenly their jaw hits the floor because they went there to get it themselves and they don't know these people, never mind trust them for their grade. And so it's been my job for the best part of 20 years to help them get the hang of, uh, to accelerate the this kind of sniffing process that goes on around teams. And we keep, kept building that and building that until we had a model that really took uh, Tuckman's form, norm, storm, perform, and made it really practical. So what's that look like when you're really making it practical with a team? What do we do? And that was the, the emphasis behind the book was we've got this tool. How do we get it out to people so that they, more folks can take advantage of really what we've learned from the difference between the great teams and the less great teams? Right, right. And what a great way to fast track and improve any organization within any team, doesn't matter how large or small. Yeah, exactly. That's, I mean, there's some key things that, that we found that is the difference maker if you want to fast track a team development, team establishment, team charter process. Mm-hmm. Can you share what some of that is? Well, absolutely. I mean, one of them goes back to the red path and green path choices. Okay. You know, the more we establish what they look like, and the more we identify the fact that red path choices are things like attack, avoid, defensiveness, blame, excuses, whining, deflecting, let's put those on the table and say, let's not do these, because we know that they're going to take us as a team backwards. And because we've labeled them, it's real easy to say, well, hang on a minute, that's, that's a red path choice. And you know, even the whining and excuses and the deflecting, they can be a bit more subtle. Even accommodating is on that list because sometimes if I accommodate you, that causes me to have something dwelling in the back of my head that means I want to get even at some point. It may not be conscious. It may be like something that's just in there. But there's that sense of it was not fair. And so we really drive people to the green path choices, which are engaging, uh, future focused, take all the perspectives into account. So that's one thing that is a difference maker. People don't get stuck on those red path ones. Right, right. Another thing is how well we spend time setting us up in the first place. Okay. And so if, if we just jump straight in and say, okay, let's start working as a team, that tends to trip us up later on. If we invest the right time to make sure we know each other, we know what our reality is, we know what we're focused on, and we establish some some basic expectations of how we work together, mm-hmm. that can make that team work a whole lot better than, than if we don't. But so, a lot of teams dismiss that. Yeah, it's so fascinating to me, all of these little nuances from just making different choices, not taking things as personally, 
how that can fundamentally change everybody's outlook and the results that they start getting because of performing at such a high level and how that can totally drive change in a company. Yeah, and even within pockets of a company. So we've yeah. been working large companies where a team has really adopted these tools and is cooking on gas. And within a company that may, may be stagnant or not working as well as it could be, and then it starts to get attention because what's happening over here? Right. What are they doing differently? And so they start to be interested in what's happening because that's an exciting team to be part of. Yeah. The byproduct of that is they then attract people who are excited to work on a high-performing team. So it kind of self-builds as does the opposite. If you're a low-performing team, that will attract people who like working on low-performing teams. Absolutely, absolutely. And you're going to do an amazing thing and allow everybody who's listening to get a taste of the book with a chapter, correct? Well, it's, it's actually uh, an extra. So we, we wrote the book and published it in April 2020. Okay. And we all know what was happening in April 2020. My book tour wasn't happening. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, and so we put it out there and we've been sharing it with our clients. And so the book tour has become more virtual. Uh, okay, cool. But what we, also, yeah, what we also found was in the rush to, we've got to get this out and we get the publish at the end. I was doing some work with our local United Way and Nakia, one of their leaders, came to me and said, mm, we think there might be a problem with your book. And it's like, well, hang on a minute. We've just published this. It's out there. And she said, yeah, but you know, it's now June 2020. And we think you've missed an opportunity to really address how race and power are impacted in what great teams do great. And it was like, oh, Nakia, absolutely. We have. Like, that's a, what a miss and what an opportunity. And so I actually sat down with Nakia, who runs the diversity and equity side of the local United Way, and said, well, what would that look like? Let's talk about what it looked like. And we wrote chapter nine, which is available for download from the Humanity website. And that's what great teams do great, race and power. And I appreciate a whole bunch of DEI experts that helped me with that one. And then, of course, we're still in 2020, and the next thing that's coming out is, well, how does this apply to virtual teams? Right. (laughs) (laughs) So we just keep getting these major world issues thrown at us that we keep adding chapters. So chapter 10, which, again, is not in the book, (laughs) but we wrote chapter 10 on uh, what great teams do great in a virtual world. And if people want to send me a note, I'm glad to share that chapter 10 with them. And they can reach me at humanity.com and, um, and we'll share that with any of your listeners that are interested in that. And it kind of builds on the work of the book, but it gives them some good tools for what great teams do great in a virtual world. Awesome. Well, and I would encourage everybody who's listening to one, buy the book and to get these two additional chapters of what great teams, what great teams do great because I cannot talk today. <laughs> what great teams do great because it's going to be such a value add in any business and and I'm going to even put out there even if you're a solopreneur having some of these really nuances of leadership skills and how you can start thinking about how you want to invite people in that you're working with even from a contractor standpoint and being able to set them up for success and being able to hire better and more effectively is going to be you know, really, really powerful. So for me, it's, I mean, it covers so many different areas that, Thank you. yeah, you can, it's, even if you have a tiny team or no team, I encourage people to get the book because it's just so powerful and so strong. 
Thanks. Uh, I've been encouraging people to, uh, to get it from a good bookstore. So it's available, should be available, all good bookstores and Amazon. <laughs> I've been encouraging people to buy it at a local bookstore. You may have to order it, but the beauty of that is the local bookstore gets a cut of it rather than Mr. Bezos, because I don't think he needs any more at the moment. Yeah. Uh, now, obviously, if you want it quick and you want it, to, he's the easy way to do it. But if we can share the a little bit with somebody else, then I love the idea of that happening. Yeah. I'm curious too, just circling back to the remote work and and teams, what do you think the biggest challenges of working remotely have been? Because I've worked from home for 10 years, so like it didn't change my existence much. I think the the key to your question was with teams. So if we if we work on our own, it's that easy to work at home remotely. I think what COVID did for organizations and teams was amplify what you were doing. So if you were doing things right, it amplified that. If you were doing things poorly, it amplified that too. And so if you had a lack of discipline around your teams and your meetings and things like that, then COVID just ruined them because it became horrible. And I think one of the, the keys to living in this virtual world or the hybrid world that we're going to go back into is the, the simple disciplines that, re, that keep the engagement. So I've got one client uh, that's hurrying up to get back to work because everybody wants to be able to have those organic conversations that happen when you just swing by somebody's office. But then what the other people are saying is, I hate those organic conversations because I'm usually in the middle of something and somebody just comes in and there's half my day gone. Right. And so the discipline that you need there is if you want an organic conversation, schedule it and because then it works for both of you. Right. And that works in a remote world as easy as it works in the real world. And it's more convenient for everybody because mm-hmm. you're not then having to reset yourself or you don't suddenly find yourself, your schedule blown apart by what's obviously an important conversation, but a note saying, when you've got five minutes, I'd love to chat is a lot easier to deal with than somebody walking in your office and saying, I've got this issue. Yeah, absolutely. And I know one of the things that I've done because I we have Slack, so that goes off, you know, in the background. And then I have clients who want my attention is, you know, I've created in my schedule several hours in the morning where like, I don't answer anything unless, you know, there's like a real emergency, which generally speaking, there is not. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's rarely a real emergency. And if they're calling you for it, that's probably, <laughs> they yeah. should have called three or four other people first. <laughs> yeah. So, or, you know, try to figure it out yourself, like take, I think people are very quick to reach out and say, let me sit with this discomfort or, you know, whatever they're experiencing. But do you agree with that? And, or is there, do you have a different system that might be beneficial for somebody, particularly with those got a sec conversations that are never just a sec? they, They never are. And I think that as we've gone virtual, that's what I've been encouraging people emulate the real world in your virtual world. So Slack is a great tool and you can set your, I believe you can set your a profile to be you know, red, yellow, green, pretty much. And so do the same thing as you would in the office. So if I was having a meeting, I might shut the office door and then it's going to be a barrier to somebody just coming in and, and interrupting. Now, so that's the equivalent of putting my little red sign up saying, do not disturb. And if the do not disturb then turns off my other notifications, it means that I'm focused. And then let me schedule a time when I want all those notifications on because all too often these days, we allow the notifications to drive our work rather than us being in control of the notifications. Yeah, I agree. I mean, not only are you task switching, which is not great, but then you're just stopped when you go do something else and then 
you never get back to what you were working on. Yeah. And even if you do, I think they say it takes about 20 minutes once you're back there to get back to the place that you were when you're yeah. interrupted. Yeah, absolutely. David, this has been amazing. <laughs> well, thank you. It's been a great chat. Yeah, we could jam on this all day. What if, and I've been asking this with a lot of my guests, but what is next for you and Humanergy? Well, we went completely virtual a year ago. So we're now a virtual organization. And so we're living a lot of what we, we teach. And so the next thing for us will be is locking that down and building on it as a, a virtual organization. Mm-hmm. And you know, we're looking at, um, I'm trying to get my business partner, who's also one of my co-authors, to think about the, the idea of this powerful questions and coaching and where that overlap is between being a leader, being a coach and powerful questions. So there may be another book on the horizon, but we know it takes a couple of years to get there. That's really exciting. Well, it will be if we can get the time and space to invest in it. I'm sure that you can create that. (laughs) It's all about choices. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And in the meantime, where can people connect with you? Uh, I'm on all the social media, humanity.com, LinkedIn. Feel free to to reach out. Uh, I'd love to connect with your listeners and, and stay in touch. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much for being on today. Uh, Thank you for inviting me, Amy. It's been a pleasure. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will see you next week. Thank you so much for being a listener of the Tribe of Leaders podcast. I am so grateful for each and every episode that you tune in and listen to. And I hope that you get a ton of value that you can implement starting today. And I do have just a quick favor. If you wouldn't mind hopping on to wherever it is that you listen to podcasts and leave us a rating and review, it would help us tremendously so that the Tribe of Leaders podcast can be found more easily and help inspire other entrepreneurial leaders. 